Thank you for the requests. And we turn now in our consecutive reading of God's Word to Lamentations chapter 3. Truly uh, some of the most well-loved uh, verses of the Bible in uh, this rather obscure chapter otherwise, that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. The Lord will cannot cast off, though He will show compassion. He does not willingly afflict, afflict nor grieve the children of man and so forth. It uh, was 20 years ago, many of us watched in horror as the Twin Towers uh, were hit by airplanes, first one, then the other. Shortly after this, there was a radio interview with John Piper, and they said, well, John, where was God on September the 11th? Uh, He he has a uh, very comprehensive answer to that question, but uh, he said, really, we're not going to make any progress here until I clarify a couple of things when we uh, are, are so blessed year after year in this country when the, when the prosperity of the nation continues to increase, when the stock market is going up and up and up. Nobody says, how can God continue to be so good to us when we're so bad? But let 3,000 people die in a single day, and we want to put God in the dock. God is the one who, as he pleases, either establishes or brings down kingdoms. He gives prosperity. He sends adversity. This is a great matter in terms of our understanding of God's sovereignty because it means that there is neither randomness nor hopelessness. If the Lord afflicts, well, we know that the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he cause grief, yet he will show compassion, that this uh, work that God is doing in the world is working a great salvation among every tribe and nation and people. And so it is that uh, we do not need to fear that there is no one at the helm of the earth or that God's purposes can fail. The end of the story ends in Revelation 22 with the redemption of the earth, with the praise of God, and with all things made new. So all these other things that are bad are not the end. If it's not good, it's not the end of the story yet. Lamentations chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me. Time and time again throughout the day... He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me... A bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people. Their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. 
And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction in roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope through the Lord's mercies. We are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause, the Lord does not approve. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? it is, not from, I mean, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with the cloud that prayer should not pass through. You have made us an of scouring and refuse in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare have come upon us. Desolation and destruction. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow and do not cease without interruption till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes bring suffering to my soul because all the daughters of my city my enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. O oh Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. O oh Lord, you have seen how I am wronged. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O oh Lord, all their schemes against me, the lips of my enemies, and their whispering against me all the day. Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them. In your anger, pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. 
And so it happened, of course, that those who had brought such desolation on Babylon were themselves swiftly brought to judgment, and the great Babylon, Babylon the Great, was fallen. Well, we turn once more in the book of Psalms to a psalm of God's salvation. If you'd like to join me in Psalm 30, let's stand together as we sing, O Lord, I will exalt you, Psalm 30 in the blue book.
Please be seated. Thank you for the good singing. Yeah, we turn back to the book of Romans. If you have a Bible, we're going to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to make reference to uh, more verses than I read to you. Um, I'm going to read to you from the beginning of the chapter down through verse 11, but I'll make reference all the way down through verse 30. Uh, oh, if uh, this is your first time this evening, uh, we're uh, in a study not consecutively through the book of Romans, but looking at particular issues in the book of Romans on which great light, new understanding, uh, new rejoicing uh, occurred during the time of the Reformation, especially looking at Luther's contribution to our uh, faith and understanding of these passages. I'd like to get, read to you now from Romans 8, starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Because, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, Again, to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, give us an understanding and a relish of these things, for we desire to know the bondage from which you, by the spirit of life, have set us free in Christ Jesus. And we pray that the joy, the wonder, the thankfulness, the rejoicing of many hearts together would be to us a strength and be to you 
a song of glory. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, as we've seen in the early days of the Reformation, the most celebrated scholar in the world of that day was a man named Erasmus. It was he who first published, well, I should say, who published the first Greek New Testament, which had converted Luther. Erasmus was a man who wanted to see the church reformed. He was something of a reformer himself. In a day of great corruption, both in church and state, he dared to write a book called In Praise of Folly, where with the little satirical edge, he challenged the ignorance and immorality of the clergy and papacy and even the emperor himself. More for the people who were spiritually in a low state, in 1524, Erasmus wrote his tract on the freedom of the will, arguing that God had given human beings the freedom to choose God over the devil, to choose good over evil. We Christians need to make the right choice. We need to try harder. We can do it. And in the book, he doesn't take a strong side over the debate of free will versus free grace. You might think that it's a pure diatribe on free will from the name, diatribe on free will. Uh, but, but actually in the book, he, he says, well, I don't know. He argues for one side and then he argues for another. And he says, you know, better leave this to the scholars. It really doesn't matter either way. All we need to know is that it's our job to choose and follow the Lord. And we'll read the theology to the theologians. He, ex- he emphasized man's moral responsibility, which was in pretty short supply. And so in this book, Erasmus defined free will as, quote, a power of the human will by which a man can apply himself to the things which lead to eternal salvation or turn away from them. In this corner, we have a man popularly known as the Prince of the Humanists, the scholar of scholars, the critical editor of the first Greek New Testament ever printed, Erasmus of Rotterdam. In the other corner, we have a German monk, recently excommunicated from the church, but still a professor at the University of Wittenberg, Martin Luther. Luther read Erasmus's tract in November and was astonished. Uh, Luther published a book-length response called On the Bondage of the Will. And he says at the beginning, you alone, Erasmus, have attacked the real thing. That is, the essential issue. You have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles rather than issues, in respect of which almost all to date have sought my blood. You and you alone have seen the hinge on which all turns and aimed for the vital spot. For that, I heartily thank you, for it is more gratifying to me to deal with this issue. 
What do you think of that? Papacy, indulgences, mere trifles. You have hit the center of the target here, Erasmus. This issue is right at the very heart of religion. Is salvation of the Lord, or is it from man? Now, all the Roman system of that day had, of course, taken a position on that matter. But all of it would be rendered meaningless and vain if salvation were of the Lord, you see. So are we Christians to understand that salvation is of the Lord, or is it of us? Are Christians to rejoice, perhaps, that, well, maybe that we are wiser than others who did not make such a good choice? Maybe that we are more righteous than others, that we have made a better choice? Or should we rather thank the Lord that he has made a surprising choice of us, opened our hearts to believe, given us sight to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and led us to the very throne of grace by his Spirit. There's only really two possible answers to this question. Luther says, this is the big question, is it not? Thank you. Thank you, Erasmus, for raising it. Now, in previous sermons, I pointed out that Luther was adamantly against salvation by our deeds. But when this tract by Erasmus came out, it turns out that Luther was just as much against salvation by our choice. Because, well, though we couldn't perhaps boast in our works, perhaps we could boast yet in our wisdom. No, 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 Luther said. Salvation must be sola fide, by faith alone, rather than works. But salvation almost, must also be soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, and not to wise or righteous man. And Luther's book quickly became a classic, not only of the Christian faith, but of sovereign grace in particular. In fact, Luther thought it was his best book. A few years before his death, Luther wrote to a friend regarding this plan to collect my writings in volumes, I am quite cool and not at all eager about it, for I acknowledge none of them to really be a book of mine, except perhaps the one on the bondage of the will and the catechism. <laughs> that's, really, that's really the only things I've done. Everything else, meh. Luther, Luther has 50 volumes, by the way, in print. Okay. The only one that he really wanted to own and, and hoped would be published and remembered was on the bondage of the will and his catechism. He thought it was that important. He thought, uh, re really, papacy, indulgences, ceremonies, mere trifles. This is the heart of religion. Erasmus had said in his tract, it, it, it doesn't matter whether it's man's choice or God's predestination or free will or free grace, let's just leave that to the theologians and make the right choice ourselves. Luther responded. It is in the highest degree wholesome and necessary for a Christian to know whether or not his will has anything to do in matters pertaining to salvation. For if I am ignorant of what I can and must do with reference to God, I shall be equally uh, ignorant 
and uncertain of what God can and will do in me. The whole of the Christian life is at stake, you see. Now, if I am ignorant of God's works and power, I am ignorant of God himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship, praise, give thanks, or serve him, for I don't know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to him. How can you say it doesn't matter? It matters. In fact, a few years later, when questioned, 1528, Luther put it like this, I condemn and reject as nothing but error all doctrines which exalt our free will as being directly opposed to the mediation and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even stronger, at another place, he, uh, he said at his table talk, this is my absolute opinion. He that will maintain that a man's free will is able to do or work anything in spiritual cases, be they never so small, denies Christ. This I have always maintained in my writings, especially against Erasmus. Uh, Them's fighting words. Well, is salvation of the Lord or is it of us? Luther contends, the doctrine of the gospel takes all glory, all wisdom, and all righteousness from men and ascribes them to the Creator alone, who makes everything out of nothing. So I ask this all by way of introduction. What do you think? Does it matter? Was Erasmus right? Was Luther right? If it matters, as Luther said it does, uh, why does it matter quite so much? Well, Luther has already given us the answer, but uh, let us go back to the source as they were doing in those days of the Reformation at Fontes, back to the source. And with a little help from Luther and an article on, Desire, from, on the website of Desiring God, I'd like us to consider together in less than five ways that the bondage is described for us here in the Bible. Our natural bondage and what Christ, our Redeemer, what the Spirit who has given freedom, what God has done to make us free indeed. And then, as Luther put it, if we can understand these things, we will not be ignorant of God's works and power or God himself. Then we will be able to worship and praise and give thanks and serve him and say salvation is of the Lord and have a proper humility. Well, let's understand these things again from the exposition of the passage. Again, not just going straight through, but looking particularly at these areas where great light came at a time of spiritual darkness. The first bondage that we come across in this passage is the bondage of guilt and condemnation. The bondage of guilt and condemnation. He begins actually in the negative because he's uh, making this by way of review. There is therefore, therefore based on all that I've said, now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Or verse 13, toward the end that I read to you, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I say this by way of review. Nothing here we haven't seen previously. It was at the first two and a half 
chapters of this, of this book, letter to the Romans that he proved that all men, religious and irreligious, Jew and Greek alike, were under sin and furthermore under the condemnation of death, guilt, and judgment. Bringing together many other scriptures, back in chapter 3, the apostle wrote that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. We are all alike condemned under sin, he wrote. And we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become Guilty. Guilty before God. The whole world. Guilty before God. Now we will consider the condition of our inner man and that bondage in just a moment. This condemnation describes a very real and very terrifying legal, formal relationship to God. The judge wraps his uh, hammer uh, on the, on the uh, dock and says, guilty. The whole world guilty. Describing our natural, legal status and relationship before God. We have sinned against him. We are guilty and under the sentence of death, we await the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he says, and when God will judge the works of men according to his gospel. Well, that's bondage number one, by way of review. A bondage of legal guilt and divine condemnation. There is nothing, nothing that the natural man can do to escape it. The second bondage in our passage is a more personal and intimate bondage. The bondage of the darkened carnal mind. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, we have the mind of the flesh, is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity. Enmity against God. You know that good old English word, enmity? Right? The, the, the natural mind, the mind of the flesh, that which we have, uh, by, by nature, is at antipathy. It is at odds with. It is in hostility against God. Describing not only a, uh, um, you might want to say, an attitude, but also all the actions of hostility that come from it. Hostility, a nice translation, the uh, ESV, hostile against God. You cannot, you cannot uh, have any other status, he says, for the carnal mind is enmity. It is an inhostility against God. Enmity against God. All right. Well, here is the bondage of the mind. You, you cannot, you see, embrace as bright and beautiful something that you hate. You, you cannot enjoy something as sweet when it tastes bitter to you. I can put that bowl of lettuce before my dog and leave it there day after day. The dog will starve before he takes a bite. Well, in the spiritual sense, there are two and only two kinds of people in the world. 
there are those with a carnal mind, mind of the flesh, and those who, in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Only two. You see that there. You see that in verse 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. Only two. The natural mind is an enmity or hostility and animosity. It can't see or savor the things of God. It is opposed to God. That's what the word means. Jesus explains, therefore, that the bondage of the carnal mind is like this. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. It's not like there's a a natural inability, but there's a moral inability. There is a, a bitterness to what is sweet. There is a love of darkness when the light shines. A bondage worse, worse still is mentioned at the end of verse 7. A bondage to the will in disobedience to God. Verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These are very, very weighty cannots. It can't please God. It can't be subject to the law of God. The natural mind, being hostile or an enmity or animosity, cannot obey the law. The law first commands us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. You cannot love the one that by nature you hate. You are bound to disobedience to the first and great commandment. By nature, we are hostile to God and hostile to the very reign of God. The carnal mind isn't subject to the law, nor can it be the bondage of disobedience to God. And there is, fourthly here, the bondage of death and judgment. Repeated here in various ways, again, pulling from previous passages he's already given in his letter, but here in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, for the wages of sin is death, he said back in chapter 3, right? Verse 6, to be carnally minded is death. Paul uses the same language in the letter to the Ephesians where he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power in the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. Death now, death then. Apart from the life-giving grace of God, all mankind abide in death, spiritual death, in trespasses and sins, and awaiting that eternal death, which the Bible ominously calls the second death, in which man is cast then into the lake of fire. All mankind by nature follow the course of this world and the prince of darkness. By nature, sons of disobedience, in lockstep with the desires of the body and the mind. By nature, children of wrath. Disobedience is not merely our choice, it is our natural preference. The bondage of spiritual death and judgment. And finally, number five, the bondage of blindness to the glory of Christ. 
This actually reaches back through the end of this chapter into chapters 9 and 10, but I'll include it here for completeness. Paul longs and prays, for example, for his fellow Israelites to be saved, but they are in blindness yet. They're still trying to do it themselves. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness, are seeking to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Um, Why could they not understand the wisdom of God? Why didn't, of all people, the people of Israel see the glory of their Messiah? To borrow his words from elsewhere, Paul says, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. He can't know them. He can't see. He can't savor. He cannot know the things of the Spirit because the things of the Spirit, as we read in this chapter, are revealed by the mind of the Spirit. Even if our gospel is veiled, He goes on to say elsewhere, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, that is the devil, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, should shine on them. So this is a terrifying five-fold bondage. Um, Erasmus says, hey, uh, you can do it, liberty of your will to be able to do the things necessary for salvation. Um, Luther thunders. We have the the bondage of the darkened carnal mind. Uh, Excuse me, the bondage of guilt and condemnation from which we cannot set ourselves free. The The bondage of the darkened carnal mind, which is at enmity to God, which we can by no means turn around. The bondage of the will and disobedience to God. It's not that we have no power to obey. We have no desire to obey, and therefore we cannot obey. We have a bondage to death and judgment by nature, children of wrath. We have a bondage to blindness, to the glory of Christ by which we must be saved. And Luther points out, if if you don't understand this bondage, if you think that these things don't matter, then you're your own redeemer. If you don't understand this natural condition, you will not understand God's gracious intervention. Because the glory of God's grace, which is celebrated here, I've given you all the bad news so far, the glory of God's grace is this, that despite all of this, despite all of our guilt and all of our wicked loves and all of our hatred of his authority and all of our stone-cold deadness to his sweetness and all of our blindness to his Christ, Nevertheless, salvation is of the Lord. This is what he's come to do. The bondage of our guilt and condemnation is nothing for God has laid our sins upon Christ that we may be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. (coughs) And the triumphant note, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To the bondage of the carnal mind, he pours out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Now to be carnally minded is not death any longer, but spiritually minded is to be life and peace. What did he say here? If the spirit of him who raises the dead dwells in you, he will give life to your mortal bodies. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Here, The carnal mind is enmity, uh, 
But uh, let's see. Sorry, uh, skipping down here. The Spirit Himself is uh, not a as uh, a Spirit that bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God. God has poured out His Spirit that we might no longer abide in this bondage to the carnal mind, but have the very mind of the Spirit. Uh, later in Romans chapter eight, the mind of the Spirit, the bondage of our will. In disobedience to God, he declares, I will send my spirit into your hearts that you may walk according to the spirit and even cry, Abba, Father, joyfully embracing the lordship of Jesus. This is the sovereign work that he does. To this bondage of death and judgment, he says, well, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And to the blindness, the bondage of blindness to the glory of Christ, God has said, let there be light. It's God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness that's shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. These are not small matters. This is the heart, Luther says, of religion, of salvation. Without these things, you, you, you don't have, well, we can still do our own choice and make our own choice for God. We don't understand anything if we do not understand that this is the glory of our Redeemer. Paul declares here that God's heart and purpose for the whole universe uh, lies in this, that one day every one of these adopted, beloved sons and daughters will be just as glorious as his only begotten Son. This is the destiny, he says, that he is working in us, that we might be predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That this adoption that he has given us to be children is a grace that's beyond justification. It's more than just uh, God acquitting sinners of all charges. Now we are declared that God's, uh, uh, excuse me, that uh, uh, he pronounces us lawful heirs to all that he is and all that he has. Heirs of God and co-heirs with God. Christ, verse 17. Paul uses the word here, adoption, which like the word justification is not just a change in our uh, status, it's a revolution in our relationship to God. As unbelieving sinners, we were alienated from God, outsiders, as far as his family is concerned. Now we belong, and Paul uses this formal legal language to remind us of the membership that we have in this new family that is absolutely Secure Adoption, this grace beyond and above justification. It's not just he set us free, he's brought us home. So, in conclusion, as somebody said, if you see the crucified and risen Christ as more glorious and more precious than anything in the world, you are a walking miracle. Not only have you understood this, but you are the recipient of divine grace. If you are no longer in bondage to guilt and death and blindness, condemnation and enmity to God and his reign and his law and his son, if you now love the light and delight in the exaltation of God's glory more than your own, if you love his authority above your autonomy, if you see and savor the glory of Christ in the gospel as the greatest treasure in the universe, well, I assure you, you owe every last bit of that to free and sovereign grace, for it is God who has set you free from that bondage. And so, 
Luther was right about this. Unless we feel the power and the pervasiveness of these things, unless we understand the eternal bondage of the peril that we were in, we will not see or savor or sing the glory of God's sovereign grace as we should, and we will not know God himself. Without such a knowledge of our former bondage and of our daily dependence, how will we ever understand anything of the meaning of grace? How will we ever feel the degree of thankfulness that we ought to feel? Where will we get the praise and the glory of the grace as we ought to praise? This cannot happen until the church, with deep understanding and resounding joy, says from the heart, salvation is of the Lord. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, our Father in heaven, how wonderful it has been to be able to trace so many wonders and glories of our pilgrimage from death to life, uh, from the guilt of condemnation to the glory of justification, indeed, from the spirit of fear to the spirit, uh, uh, the spirit, fear again to bondage, to the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba. Father. Wretched men and women that we were, it is you who have delivered us from this body of death through Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that you would have your praise and glory in us. Indeed, you have so left us in this yet weakened condition that we might very consciously remain aware of our need for you, need for sustaining grace, need for sanctifying grace, for preserving grace as we read this morning. We know that we might, like Peter, this very hour or this very evening before any rooster crowed, deny you unless you hold us up, even as you prayed for him that his faith should not fail. So you hold your children in your dear hand. And we, from beginning to end, thank you from the very bottom of our hearts for the salvation that has flowed from your throne of grace through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.